0: Yeah, I mean I think any journey you go on, you no matter how woke you think you are, you're gonna have preconceptions. And it's really important to have the to, to be open to thinking of how can you explore those preconceptions and have them shatter.
1: What is up everyone? I am Tom Ball and this is Second Mind, the show that empowers you to be the best version of yourself and better our world. Today I'm joined by Ash Badvaj. Ash is a travel writer, filmmaker and storyteller who explores the world with curiosity, excitement and a sense of adventure. Just to name a few of his accomplishments, he has travelled 8,500 kilometres through 11 countries along Russia's European border, retraced World War II secret missions through Albania's mountains on foot, walked 800 kilometers through India on the TV documentary, Walking the Himalayas, meeting the Dalai Lama along the way. And he's even walked 1,100 kilometers through Uganda and Sudan with Leveson Wood on the documentary, Walking the Nile, including the first summer crossing of the Bayuda Desert. He has written for the Daily Telegraph, the Times and the Huffington Post, and has produced programs for Channel Four and BBC. Ash, welcome to the show. Cheers, Tom. Good to see you. No worries, no worries. Uh, I just wanted to start off by going into where your drive for travel and adventure has come from. Is this something that uh, has cumulatively built up through your younger years? I think there were probably
0: two places where it started off, and the first was. As a kid, I was fascinated by space. My uncle worked for JPL, which is the R&D wing of NASA, if you like. <clears throat> so I was always fascinated with space. I always used to go to the Science Museum or the Natural History Museum with my mum's brother. Um, I always loved the notion of discovery of the world and science. And I think that probably took me into a real interest in sci-fi. So that was probably really where my uh, wonder about actual travel came from. Uh, you know, watching things like Star Trek The Next Generation and thinking about these amazing journeys these guys were off on to explore strange new worlds. Mm. Um, so I think that's really where my sense of adventure and travel was, that's where that interest really started. And when I was 16, I went to Windsor Boys School, it was a, it's the local comprehensive in Windsor, but it has a very good background in playing rugby and every year they would do a rugby tour to um, uh, well, every couple of years, they do a rugby tour. And one of them was going to New Zealand. My mum uh, got a second job working as a cleaner to pay for me to go to New Zealand, and I just absolutely loved it. I really relished it. It was the first time I'd been away from home on my own, and to go so far away and to see a culture that is familiar but has lots of differences, and particularly because of the Maori influence in New Zealand, mm. you've got all of that coming in. So yeah, that was quite fascinating.
1: Wicked. Uh, I noticed that you've also, on a a lot of your journeys, or your earlier journeys, you used your hobbies as kind of a bridge to, like with with the rugby, and I know that you've done some time as a a ski instructor, and you also spent some time uh, being a cowboy as well, which is one of your your dreams as a a kid. So have you found success with using your hobbies as a way to bridge your travel? Yeah, I think there's a couple of
0: different ways you can be really inspired to go traveling but where this came from was I was finishing university and I had no idea what I was really going to do after university. I switched from doing chemistry and molecular physics to philosophy uh, which meant that I was very well qualified to be unemployed and to sit around thinking which is uh, I think the main task of a philosopher and I wasn't sure what I would do. I did one of those career quizzes that you can do that you type in your favorite sport where you like to spend time what's your favorite color how do you like to stay cooked and then it spits out a series of career recommendations uh, I think I got prison officer school teacher and um, army officer training I mean the the quiz was sponsored by the UK government and the home office so probably going to guide you into the careers that they want people to go into but mm. Did my entrance exams for the army i was going to go to sandhurst to go and be a regular army officer um but there were three things i really wanted to do um, that i that kind of evolved as an idea was i was at university and that was to go back to new zealand to play rugby a bit more properly to go and be a ski instructor in france and to be a cowboy so i set out and in my year after university achieved to varying levels of success all three of those things i worked as a cowboy Well, I worked on a farm in Tasmania and then worked on a racehorse stud up in Queensland in Australia. Um, Unfortunately, I then fell off a racehorse and my plan to go be a, a jackaroo, which is the Australian word for cowboy, up in the Northern Territory. That had to be put on ice because my hand was being put back together by a very good surgeon in Toowoomba. And then I moved to New Zealand and I played rugby there because obviously playing rugby in New Zealand is safer than riding horses barely, There's some big blokes down in the South Island, and um, yeah, whilst I was there, I trained as a ski instructor, so managed to tick off all three of those things and put, um, played rugby just for fun at the local club, um, trained as a ski instructor there, and then came back to be a ski instructor in Switzerland, so managed to get all three of those things done, uh, and then I've been trying to work out what to do next ever since.
1: I think those words resonate with a lot of people who are coming out of university. I know the same was, was true for me in some stages when you, you don't quite know, know what to do, but sometimes it's nice to just embrace that and then follow your, follow your interests and they can take you to some unexpected but really cool situations.
0: Well, the other advantage of a hobby is it gives you a very good reason to get to know local people. Uh, you know, Playing rugby in New Zealand, all the other guys I was playing with were locals from that town, second, third generation from Wanaka. Um, And they were farmers or did local jobs or they were builders or they were, you know, they worked on the leg. They weren't what most people are in a town like Wanaka or Queenstown is uh, temporary workers who are there for the ski season. So it just gave me a really good insight into genuine South Island Kiwi culture, which was brilliant. And then getting on the bus every weekend and driving around the South Island to go and play rugby in some of the most beautiful scenery in the world. Uh, yeah it's a great way to get to get a different insight into a place same with australia working as a jack and working out on farms rather than just working in bars or getting drunk in sydney not that there's anything wrong with that at all but you just get a, a different insight that you may not otherwise have
1: yeah i've definitely found that on my travels as well when you're engaging with people on a local level with the activities that they're doing it gives you an instant connection to people and it it really gives you a a deeper understanding of how things how things run there and it can often reflect a lot of thoughts back to how things work in your own country as well which is always an interesting observation
0: yeah,
1: yeah definitely so you took uh, a trip along the russian border an epic journey was this this mostly on foot
0: uh no it was, uh, it was mostly on trains actually most of the distance was on trains but i did okay. do quite a bit of walking where I could. Uh, So this was a journey which I termed the New Iron Curtain. And it was the, I guess the the primary reason for it was after I was sent to Estonia with the British Army Reserve. So it was part of a a big deployment that the army undertook in 2017. Russia had invaded and annexed Crimea in 2014, which was part of Ukraine. And then it had um, basically secretly supported a war in eastern Ukraine. Uh, and the rest of Eastern Europe and NATO member states in particular that had formerly been part of the Soviet Union were concerned that Russia had interest in doing the same thing to let Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania uh, and Poland. Poland wasn't part of the Soviet Union, but it was still worried that Russia might do the same. Uh, so NATO undertook something called the enhanced world presence. So they sent a brigade of troops to um, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania and Poland to deter uh, Russian... Um, mischief basically so we've been we've been sitting as part of this deployment it just been very curious about how little we understand about uh, recent history and the impacts that has on the world today in current affairs in Estonia the narrative of World War II is very different to ours it's not about Germans being the bad guys us being the good guys and the Soviets helping us out for them they were an independent country that got invaded by the Soviet Union the Germans were a group that they would have preferred, but preferred, you know, for, for them, the arrival of the Germans wasn't really any worse than what they were already undergoing under the Soviets, who'd already either killed or deported 2% of their population. Um, and then the Soviets came back in again at the end of World War II and occupied them for 50 years. So the narrative of history is very different there. And I was just fascinated by these different complexities of, of history and mm-hmm. these different complexities of ethnicity. You've got Russians and um, Russian-Estonians and Estonian-Estonians in Estonia, which isn't something I'd ever really considered or thought about before, that that would be a problem. Um, so I was just curious about the lives of the people that lived on this border and what the impact of the end of World War II and the Soviet Union was in this area. Um, and I realised there were these problems going on all, all along that border. So I travelled overland uh, from Norway, right, where Norway touches Russia, up in the Arctic Circle, the end of the old Iron Curtain, And I went through Finland, St. Petersburg, and that region of Russia, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Kaliningrad, which is this area that used to be part of Germany, uh, East Prussia. Uh, and then basically Red Army got in there at the end, of, very end of World War Two, ethnically cleansed it of Germans and filled it with um, mostly Russians, but people from the other parts of the Soviet Union as well. So it's now part of Russia. So you've got this really odd island of Russia inside Europe it's got Poland on one side and Lithuania on the other um, and then into Poland into Belarus Belarus was amazing I absolutely love Belarus um, the most delightfully surprising place that I went to then to Ukraine um, went to Kiev went to Lviv went to Chernobyl uh, went to Donbass which is where the conflict is still going on in the east and then down to, went down through Odessa into Transnistria, which is the country that doesn't exist. It's this part of Moldova that's ethnically Russian and is kind of self-declared of its own state. Into Moldova and then back into Kiev and then down into Russian-occupied Crimea. Um, and I took trains for most of the route um, just because it's an awesome way to travel in that part of the world and it, it's a great way to experience their culture and that region's identity. Uh, a lot of it is a legacy of the Soviet Union, particularly in Ukraine and um, Belarus, obviously, uh, and and the Baltic states. Um, but I did also walk for quite a bit. I walked from Poland into Belarus, which was amazing. Uh, I didn't think I could do that. People had told me that uh, the Belarusians were very tired from their border control. So the fact that I just bimbled in there on foot. I mean, I'd sorted with my visas out beforehand but that was great. I had a great time in Belarus. And then um, another region that I did a lot of walking in was Crimea. I walked across Moldova from one side to the other. And um, then down in, more, down in Crimea, I just retraced the route of the 1854-55 Crimean War.
1: Fantastic. And along the way, you put together a series of podcasts that went out online. How did you come up with the concept for those podcasts? Was it a... Uh, cultural focus that you had before you went or was uh, were you open to spontaneity with picking up different themes along the journey?
0: Well I mean it was geopolitics and cultural alignment that had started that journey for me. Do people feel aligned to the west? Do people feel aligned to the east? How do they feel about NATO? How do they feel about Putin? You know those are the sort of big questions but the reality is those are big geopolitical questions and you know, you're not, I'm not going to answer those geopolitical questions. I'm not a foreign affairs analyst. I'm not in Chatham House or anything like that. Um, but what I was intrigued by is what impact those big picture things had on the lives of local people along the way. Mm. What is it like being a Russian Estonian living in Narva? What is it like being an ethnic seton living on the border of a land where half of your country has been taken by Russia? Uh, What's it like being a Russian-Ukrainian living in Kiev? What's it like being a Russian-Ukrainian living on the border of a conflict zone? So it was very much focused on the experiences of the people. But the podcast series was for the Telegraph, for the Telegraph travel. So I think what has really been the golden thread through my journeys is to go to places that we think we know and reveal curious or interesting things about them. Uh, because you're never going to know much about a country that's on the other side of Europe. Uh, did you know that the Latvians have these amazing sauna rituals that are derivative of pagan Arianism in the region? Um, or that in uh, Finland they have lots of different types of sauna and there's actually more sauna in Finland than there are people. So you've got these <laughs> amazing little works of, uh, of regional identity and trying to draw those out and talk about them because it's you know travels all about the people you meet yes it's magnificent landscapes and cool food but it's very much the people that drive your experience and sense of place
1: must have been fascinating to hear the the stories from those people because in those geopolitical battles there's this very much like push pull with the borders and there's um there, there's, there, there, you're right, there are those human identities at those borders, which are on an ind- individual level, um, experiencing all of this change. And I'm sure it must have been a, 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 the last, you know, like 50 years must have been a very um, turbulent time for some of these areas where their identity seemed to shift, you know, on, by the year.
0: Yeah, I mean, for Estonia, they, they never chose Soviet rule. It was foisted upon them and uh, then it was declared that they'd been invited in by uh, the Estonians, but I mean, they hadn't, there'd been a few communists in Estonia that had invited them in, but effectively it was the force of the Red Army that guaranteed the Soviet Union stayed there. Mm. (laughs) And actually in Estonia, there was this big event that happened in 2008, There's a statue in the middle of Tallinn, the capital city of Estonia, which is a monument to the Red Army soldiers who had died in the liberation of Tallinn now to the soviets and to ethnic russian estonians many most of whom moved there after uh, the soviet occupation um those soldiers their heroes just as we you know honor the veterans that fought in world war ii on the beaches of normandy to them the, to the russians uh these were their grandfathers and fathers who f- died fighting fascism and liberating yeah. europe but to The Estonians, these were the soldiers that then came in and occupied them for 50 years. So there's really mixed feelings in Estonia about this. For the Estonian Estonians, this was a symbol of occupation. For the Russian Estonians who'd come in with the occupiers, this was a symbol of uh, heroism and defence against fascism and the creation of a better world order. Um, But the Estonians wanted it moved to a military cemetery outside of uh, the centre of Tallinn, and um, the Russians... I think Russians didn't like this too much and certainly stirred up by agents from the Kremlin uh, and fake news before the word fake news was a big deal uh, and lots of agitators literally going into the crowds. It started two days of riots in Estonia. So these the legacies of what happened in that time are very vivid and very active and have an impact on the lives and politics of that country today. And that's true everywhere along that border. The question about... You know how geopolitics affects you know, the individual people's stories. I, I was what was fascinating about that. Was uh, the guy who actually drove me to that statue was a, a Belarusian taxi driver. So it was great to hear his insights and his thoughts from it. Because when I've been there before, I'd only been there with the Estonian Defence Force, which is the Estonian Reserve Military. So very much had their point of view on it. So it's quite good to hear both both people's opinions uh, or both sides' opinions. Um, but you know, geopolitics has always talked about when journalists go and interview academics or professionals or generals or political leaders, you don't often hear it from the people on the front line, hundreds of miles, thousands of miles from these capitals and these centers of power, who are the people who will be the first ones to be affected if it all goes wrong. And for me, Mm. you know, being in a military unit, we'd have to go and fight if a war were to occur on that border. This almost had an existential feeling to me, if I don't understand this, and if other people get this wrong then there could be conflict, and I would be one of the people sent to get involved in that conflict.
1: Mm. And on the, the journey, you said you went through Ukraine and got to visit Chernobyl. Yeah. That, that must have been a very interesting experience. It seems like a very surreal landscape to adventure in. Yeah,
0: I mean, I I remember studying Chernobyl. I remember, just about remember the legacy of it happening in, on the news. I was probably eight, I was four or five when it happened. So maybe I don't remember the actual event happening, but I can remember you know, bits and pieces on TV in the years afterwards. And I do remember learning about it at GCSE Geography and thinking, wow, this is a really interesting thing. I'd like to find out more about this or maybe go and see it one day. So to be, actually be able to go and see it was you know, something I'd always wanted to do. But it's a fascinating place because the, the radiation is undoubtedly causes problems for the people there. The and the whole area has been evacuated. But the the impact of that is you've got an area that is effectively wilderness and has rewilded itself because no one's farming this land, not many people. There's a few people that have returned, self settlers. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's really good populations of um, wild animals in that area. The the cooling ponds for the old nuclear reactors are still stocked with massive fish because no one's fishing because they don't want to uh, consume the radiation from it. So it's quite a remarkable place to go and see uh and there's these amazing relics of the soviet union there obviously you've got the reactor you've got two reactors that they'd started building that they never finished um but actually the other three reactors carried on working until about 10 years ago 10 15 years ago so remarkably even after chernobyl had its disaster the other reactors continued working
1: um were they at the same site as the one that exploded they were next to that site
0: one is back-to-back. It's the same building. It's the other side of the building. So that's Reactor 4. That's Reactor 3. So it's back-to-back with Reactor 4.
1: Bloody hell.
0: Yeah, Reactor 4 is the one that um, blew up. and Reactor 3 backs onto it. There were people working in that until 15 years ago.
1: Wow, that's incredible. And so yeah, I take it's... it that you you had a, a Cat or radiation detector when you were there. And you, you could...
0: Yeah, I mean, as you go around the whole area, I, I don't know if you saw the HBO series, but what they did at the end of... Um, the end of the cleanup process. This was another thing that linked part of my journeys together. Whilst I was up in Estonia, I got chatting to a guy that ran a restaurant in, in Tallinn, And he, um, he remembers his father disappearing for six months. His dad went to work one day and didn't come back. And then six months later, he turned up again. And it turns out what had happened is he'd gone to work. They'd, um, it's right. You've got to go and deliver this. I think it was a tractor got to go and deliver it to the army compound. But okay went and delivered it to the compound. They locked the gates behind him and said, right, you're, um, you're going to Chernobyl to help clean it up. And what they did was they pressed gang people from across the Soviet Union and forced them to go and work on the cleanup sites of Chernobyl. And he wasn't able to call his. Well, they, they said to him, you know, you're going to Chernobyl, you'll never see your family again. And they put him on cattle trucks, sent him down there and it was his job. It, luckily for him, he wasn't within the, the super dangerous area. He was on the external area driving people around. Um, but yeah, he just. There were these people that were just sent to Chernobyl to um, clean up the area, and then every all the quick kit and equipment that they finished with, they dug big pits and buried it, covered, in, covered it in concrete. Uh, and any of the animals that they shot and killed, they buried them in concrete pits. So as you go around, you, there are these mounds with um, uh, radiation signs on them, which is where they cut down they cut down trees because trees absorbed a lot of it cut down trees, buried it, uh, and then just buried it in soil. So you've just got these radioactive pits kicking about. And, you know, you definitely should not go wandering in the woods there on your own. It's not because you're going to meet radio- radioactive monsters, but you might end up in one of these pits. that's being unmarked, or the earth is being disturbed or something. Mm. But, you know, the guy encounters we had, the, the highest I saw was four times what you'd get in central London. So, you know, okay. still far below what you're going to get um, on an intercontinental flight. So um, it's it's a place where tourism is starting to happen. And I think part of the reason is uh, as Ukraine aligns itself more with the West, they're very keen to show how dastardly the Russians were and uh, how Mm. Chernobyl happened. So there's like a political element to that as well. (laughs)
1: <laughs> i'm sure it must have been very interesting to i don't know if, if if you did see the hbo series that happened but to compare sort of your your journey and the comments of the people with uh, the story that was laid out in in that series uh,
0: yeah i mean i'm not an academic or an expert on chernobyl but the stories that i was told and the things that i saw aligned very well with what they, what i saw in that series A pretty impressive Actually, i've got to listen to the podcast about it i know they did a podcast series about how they made it. And the attention to detail is excellent. It gave you a real sense of the Soviet Union, I thought.
1: Mm. Did you get to speak to any of the people who were living then inside the radiation boundary? Or did they yeah, them? there
0: was a guy who was a self-settler. He um, he'd was he worked on worked the factory. I knew he'd work, he definitely worked on the cleanup. But he and his wife were forced to leave their house and go and live in Kiev. And then one day he's just decided, nah, do you know what? I don't wanna live in the city, I'm gonna go back to my land and keep on farming my land. He was in his 80s, his wife had only died a couple of years ago, but the, on average, the self settlers that return to the exclusion zone, that's the area they've been kicked out of, they live longer than the people who've been moved out of the exclusion zone and moved into the cities. Now just think about that for a second. Those who return to the exclusion zone tend to live longer. And I think it's very much because that's where they want to be. So there's a whole mm-hmm. host of stuff beyond the impact of the radiation on the body. Uh, I mean, I, I, I haven't done enough research to look at the impact of radiation in Chernobyl and the exclusion zone. I know that there's been you know, lots of people with thalidomide or kids born with deformities and so on. Uh, uh, not people with thalidomide, people with thyroid issues and kids born with um, deformities. Mm-hmm. But the people like him who've gone back to live there, They're farming their own land. They're in their home. They're in the place that they want to be. They're doing active work outside. They're not in a city. So there's a whole host of stuff that is keeping them alive for longer.
1: Bit of a statement on the the lifestyle issues of living in a city, maybe.
0: Yeah. um, Yeah. Living in a city, more dangerous than living in a nuclear exclusion zone. That's Mm. quite a powerful statement.
1: (laughs) Uh, So to move on to some of the, the other journeys that you've done, a lot of them um, have been on foot when the walking the Himalayas and walking the Nile programs with, mm. with Leveson Wood. Um, a lot of those journeys are on foot. What do you think it is about being on foot? That's uh, an attractive way of traveling for a travel writer or adventurer.
0: So I think there's sort of some very pragmatic elements. One, it's cheap, uh, <laughs> so you, you don't have to worry about a lot of costs. Two, it's fairly simple. You did not have to think too much about it. You just go in a direction you go. So there's those sort of like boring, pragmatic things. It, it's slow. So you're forced to take in your surroundings. You're also really aware of the transition from one place to, a ne- to the next. You go from one area of London to another on the Tube. All you know is the places you want to go, the area around the Tube, and then the next place you're at in the area around the Tube. Whereas if you walk, you get a sense of how the neighbourhoods are changing. Mm. Like, oh, these houses look like they were built in the, you know, sort of tenements in the late 19th century, where there's big, big blocks of um, uh, red brick flats where workers would have lived. And then you go into terraced houses, and then you go past the mansions, and then the parks. So you start to get a sense of how everything fits together. So that gives you a much better sense of place and sense of transition, and everything starts to make sense. It's like words in a sentence rather than words on their own, if that makes sense. That mm. makes sense um, so there's those advantages and also you're not intimidating or unusual to people so you're like oh here's a bloke on foot I walk on foot yeah he's like me and because you're going slow you're more likely to interact with people so you know travel rising is a product of source material interactions and events you're more likely more likely to have those if you're on foot um, and then there's much more I guess fundamental and pseudo spiritual elements you know, humans have evolved to walk bipedally and to migrate and to be hunter gatherers and to work in tribes. so being on foot is very natural and it's actually something we don't do very often so when you spend extended periods of time walking it completely alters everything i find that i'm just happy when i'm walking i'm not bored i'm not in need of distraction. My- I feel fit. I feel strong. I feel healthy. Um, my mind starts to change. It's almost like meditation constantly. So there's a whole host of real benefits to walking, um, as against traveling by any other means.
1: Mm. I can definitely relate to that. There's something really special about walking even through places that you already know, but even more so exploring new areas on foot, it, it just gives you a real sense of the energy of a place. And... I mean, I walk
0: around London all the time. It's the best way to explore.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I understand you, you wore, you didn't sort of go in your own gear. You adopted the clothing and fashion of the people in the area so that you'd... Or, sort of, sort of place,
0: well, from place to place, like the first stretch when we were in Uganda, we were just, you know, if I was adopting the fashion of what everybody else wore, I'd be wearing an Arsenal shirt because that's what most of the people wore in Uganda. Uh, but. <laughs> We, we wore was sponsored by craghoppers at the time. So we wore craghoppers gear because we could get that for free. We uh, wore all the big boots. So it's very much, you know, normal uh, hiking in the mountains of England or walking around the Peak District, that kind of gear. Um, just because it was hot, it was humid, it was scrambling up and down, difficult terrain. So that was the right kit to wear. Um, and it was the easiest kit to wear. When we got to the desert, when we got to Sudan, Um, they're much less used to Western culture, much less used to, you know, fewer people wear Western clothing, many people still wear traditional clothing there. And it's also a a place where you don't really want to stand out too much because there's it's, a a police state. Um, so it's, you know, it's better if you can blend in a little bit rather than standing out, just reduces the amount of trouble you might get from the authorities, not that you're doing anything wrong. Um. But also when we were just crossing the desert, it was by far the best gear to wear, you know, if you're wearing just practical,
1: yeah,
0: it's just practical. It was mm. cool, it white, It kept the sun off, wore like, um, like a turban around our heads. It was just by far the best gear to wear for that heat. It was Got up to 52 degrees in the desert.
1: Sweltering. And that was walking around like 15, 20, 25 miles a day.
0: Yeah. More. We got up to 56 kilometers one day. Which
1: okay. is so, All right. How to well. train, train up the feet to resist the blisters on that one.
0: Yeah, I did did actually did like uh, um, practice practice walking like five six miles a day before I went. There. Yeah, I mean, I think any journey you go on, you, no matter how woke you think you are, you're going to have preconceptions, and it's really important to have the to to be open to thinking of how can you explore those preconceptions and have them shattered. The most useful one for me was observing that so many people wore Arsenal shirts and then thinking, why do they all wear Arsenal shirts? Arsenal aren't a particularly good team. They haven't been a good team for quite, quite a long time. I don't know if you're an Arsenal fan, but you know it's uh, it's definitely the truth that they're not a great team these days. Thank and you. I think... Sorry?
1: I was like, they could have picked a better shirt. Well, <laughs> yeah, I, so I was just curious as
0: to why, why were these guys all wearing Arsenal shirts? And it turns out the reason is that when the Premier League became international. Arsenal were a good team. They just had loads of black players in their team at that time, which really meant that those young lads watching the best league in the world, they could see themselves in those players. Therefore, they had an affinity to that team, to Arsenal. Uh, And so it was really good to sort of realise that there are people that think in the same kind of way. They love football like people do in England, and you can have a chat about football stuff like that that just breaks down these barriers where you think oh they're all exotic And i think it's very easy to orientalize and exoticize places when you go away I and mean, one of the great problems in travel writing travel storytelling uh, and travel television definitely in the uk is it's all done by white men and they can't help but repeat some of the old cliches and behaviors that come from an imperial legacy and imperial past so I think it would be good to see a bit more diversity in the travel world just because you have people who are taking ideas of well no they're not that exotic they're just like my uncle <laughs> you know and I think those sorts of approaches that that will have a big impact on the way travel journalism is done to reducing the othering and exoticizing of people when you travel.
1: Mm. What are your thoughts on on mainstream travel as it is at the moment the, the way people are travelling do you think we are traveling in, in the most natural way. Or do you think there's a way that people can improve and get more out of it?
0: I mean, the most natural way to travel is on foot um, uh, with your entire tribe and family and this, you know a couple of spears and bows and arrows, but I don't really see that taking off again anytime soon. <laughs> uh, I think like the, the desire to travel and curiosity is inbuilt into humans. It's probably a genetically evolved uh, trait and a culturally evolved trait that has become very useful because it's through discovery and movement that humans have become such a successful um, animal on earth. Uh, so I think like, the instinct to travel is always going to be there. This how people travel, there's such a variety. There's the sightseers who go to places just to take photos. There's the people who go to see family. There's those who go for work. There's go- those who do independent travel, package tours, resort tours, um, backpacking. And then you've kind of got the slightly more curious Educational traveler, you might go for learning about history or geography or something like that. I think it's very easy to patronise people who are just going for sightseeing tours or holidays. My girlfriend often says to me, "We just go on a holiday and sit on the beach, please? rather than going to walk somewhere or going to learn something." So I think uh, I think it's a shame if people don't travel in ways which are slightly more beneath the surface. But then really, it is what people do on used to do on the hippie trail. I suppose that was fairly groundbreaking. You no know, one was travelling that far back in the days of the Hippie Trail when people travelled overland to India. Mm. Um, and then as people started to back around, backpack around Cambodia, Thailand, um, Vietnam, Laos, you know, in the early days that was certainly pretty, uh, pretty courageous really because there, there wasn't the setup for it. Well, I suppose you had the legacy of the Americans being in Vietnam in, world, in the Vietnam war has certainly meant that there was some tourist infrastructure. there. But you know, now when people say, "Are oh, they going backpacking around Southeast Asia, is that really any more adventurous than going on a package holiday to Spain? I mean, you've probably got a bit more freedom, but it's not that much discovery. Yeah, um, It's culturally different, which I think is definitely a good thing. And it's good that people do it, but is it adventurous? Are they, are they, are they really engaging with that culture? or are they going there just to get cheap booze, cheap food, and shag other people from the country that they come from? Not that there's anything wrong with this, but is that really adventurous, or is it doing exactly what we do in Ibiza in Spain, but just doing it in Cambodia? Um, So, you know, I'm I'm not one to say that the way I travel is better than the way everyone else travels. It's the way that I get fulfillment from my travel. And, you know, when I started my travel by going backpacking around India, doing all those things that everyone does in other places. And it was great. You know, I really enjoyed it. But for me, when I went to India, I also had this thing of wanting to learn about my heritage, which was Indian. Mm. And that that was really where I think this notion of the travel that I do now with a sense of curiosity and underpinning it with uh, self-education came from. Now, I find that more rewarding. But if other people want to go travelling just to have fun, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, the, the things to really think about when we're travelling is... What are we doing um, for others, for those communities and more widely for the planet? So it's all one and good traveling and not using plastic straws. I think that's really good. That's one form of environmental damage. But then the other form of environmental damage is flying by planes or just a lot of the consumer lifestyle that is involved in travel and the energy, the carbon, the resource, that are used up for me to go and enjoy another part of the world. So it's something that I'm still trying to work out. I'm still trying to wrestle with. I think it's very important to go and engage with other cultures. I think it's wonderful to go to other parts of the world. My career is based on getting on planes and consuming huge amounts of fuel and generating carbon dioxide and effectively when I'm travel writing, encouraging other people to do that. Mm. So there's definitely an ethical and moral problem. I have around that type of travel in and of itself. As in flying, but um, I think yes, there are there are types of travel that are more damaging than others. Whether you know that's exploitative, whether that's overconsumption of resources, you know, going all the way to I mean, southern Spain where it's really pretty dry to play golf in watercourses courses that irrigated and already water stressed environment. Mm. I think that's bad travel. Yeah. Um, so yes, there are good and bad forms of travel for the environment. Um, supporting um, supporting operators or ideas that actually do give money back to the local community and actually engage them rather than just setting up massive trump hotels and resorts in places and just employing people from outside that area so yeah, there's, there's good and bad ethical travel i think
1: mm. i think it is extremely important that if people are traveling it's a real as much as it can be a, a cultural exchange because it's also opportunity for them to learn about you Um I guess that's less needed in you know like those areas in Vietnam where you know people are going there to get drunk and go on their like gap year kind of kind of stuff. I think they've probably heard enough about our culture, but yeah, there's there's a real value for for both sides if it's done properly. Um, but I
0: think those those are uh, examples of areas where it's probably more valuable because all they see is drunk Brits and Aussies mm, um, getting purple. drunk and misbehaving in the street and. All those people see of the Vietnamese or the Cambodians is somebody to sell them cheap booze or get them some drugs. That's yeah. not cultural exchange. You know, eating pad thai is not cultural exchange. Well, it's better than never having eaten pad thai, but is it genuine cultural exchange? Not really. I'm, you know, I knew a guy who went and lived as a, a monk in northern Thailand for six months. That's cultural exchange. He then went back and, you know, uh, had fun getting drunk in um Bangkok and everything as well. But he then had a real engagement and, and love of that culture and that country. And it, in fact, spoke the language. I th- I do think, you know, even in those places, there's good cultural exchange can happen.
1: Mm. I, I remember I, I actually went to Thailand myself and tried to really steer my way away from the main routes mm. of travel for a lot of travelers Then I ended up on on an island which was basically only a tourist destination for other Thai people. And it was really interesting to just experience that. And I did a lot of traveling there, like on, on foot. So obviously you get around maybe on like a moped or a bus. And then once you got to an area, you travel on foot. And I walked to the top of this tower, where a monk was sitting. He was watching this, like boxing match on his TV. And, uh, he just saw us sort of inquisitively looking around the corner. He had almost like a, it was like a, a weird sort of cave in the side of this hill. Um, and he was, he had a TV plugged in somehow, and he was, uh, he was eating a yogurt. And then he, I was with, uh, my girlfriend at the time and he offered us yogurts and we just sat with this monk and tried to have very oh, yeah. like pr- primitive communication whilst watching this boxing match. And it was really like a lesson in spontaneity, but also, as you were saying about just, um, em- embracing journeys on, on foot and connecting people at their local level, it's, it was something really special. Well, something else I
0: think is really good is to try and do that in your own country because it's so easy to go. Oh, there's nothing to learn about England, and you know, there's so much to learn. I've not seen any of the Peak District really. I've seen a couple of couple of towns and a few hills in the Peak District. I've not seen. I, I know nothing about the Northeast. I barely know Manchester. though know, I've got family from there. I'd love to go and see Cornwall. I've, I've been to a few places in Cornwall, but. Those are places that are really culturally quite different to London, massively culturally different. That's not even looking at going to Wales and Scotland and Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. So you don't have to go to the other side of the world to have these amazing uh, exchanges and cultural experiences uh, and to learn something about a place and their values. If I go spend time with somebody who still works in um, a heavy industry up in the northeast of England, that's, that's a world away from where I come from, even though we still speak the same language. Although Geordie's quite hard to understand, it, um, it, I think it's important to try and retain those approaches that we take to other places back home, and have that same curiosity and um, compassion for uh, our fellow countrymen. I think
1: hmm. you've done a fair amount of your trips um, as a solo journey. Do you think that a lot of people should embrace? that and do a solo journey at least once in their life?
0: Yeah, I think you should definitely do solo travel. Um, you can start, there's two ways to do it. You can throw yourself in at the deep end and learn, or you can gradually work your way into it by starting with smaller trips. Um, I mean, there's obviously there's uh, people will have safety concerns, but generally most safety concerns, if you do your research and you go to places which are safe, that's not really much of an issue. So I think that's just a case of doing your research, doing your planning. and Uh, It it doesn't happen as often as you think, I I believe. Hmm. Uh, Bad things don't happen as often as they think. Um, The personal reward and the joy that you get from it is enormous because if you're travelling with somebody else, you do have to think about what do they want to do. Um, You have to consider them. You have to consider what their interests are. uh, And you'll probably spend most of your time talking to them. Not that there's anything wrong with that. That's a wonderful way to travel. I really enjoy traveling with my girlfriend. But When you're traveling on your own, you are much more likely to have to engage with people. People are much more likely to talk to you because they see you on your own. Um, and you, you, you can do what you want every day. You don't have to think about anyone else. That's an extremely liberating feeling. Uh, it can be very lonely at times as well, definitely. But overall, I would say it's one of the best ways, one of the best things you can do is to go and do at least one solo journey.
1: If if you were going to write a sort of the the miniature values Bible of a a good a good traveller, if you were going to pick three things as as values to take with you on your travels, what would you pick?
0: Uh, curiosity, you definitely have to be curious. That has to be uh, one of your values, I think. Um, empathy. So you need to be able to try and. You need to work hard to understand why people do those things. What's their background? So, you know, it's really easy when going through... Russia is a good example. You know, we, particularly if you're in the British military, you are focused on Russia being a central threat. And how, how do you, you know, how do you plan on, on the ground level on a military way to deal with that? Uh, and then you, you hear in the news Russia is an adversary. So you presume that Russians are adversaries. You need to go there and think, well, actually... What's it like for them? So why 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 is Putin popular in Russia? Why is it easy to say that the West is being aggressive? And you go there and you stand on that side of the border and you learn about the million and a half people who died in St. Petersburg during the siege by, siege by the Germans and the really deep belief within Russia that they were betrayed by their European allies in 1941 when Germany invaded Russia in Operation Barbarossa. Now, whether or not you agree with their analysis that the West is being aggressive against Russia again. It's important to understand what the background and their beliefs are that allow that belief to happen, What has happened in the past. So to empathise and to not just go, well, you're wrong. Mm. Well, you know, they might be mistaken in their belief about Western aggression, but their fear and their belief is very real and valid to them. So to have that empathy and understand why things are different. Now that's not to say you can't be objective about certain things. I think the um, uh, the way um, the homophobia and the misogyny that you see, uh, especially in places in Eastern Europe, places in parts of the United States of America, um, intolerance—these are things that are objectively wrong. Um, you have to be careful about telling people that when you when you're in those countries. But to to empathise with understanding where that comes from, whilst also understanding for yourself. That, I, I personally believe those things are objectively wrong. So empathy is definitely the second one. Um so curiosity, empathy I don't know, don't know what the third one is. I'll have to come back to you on that.
1: All right, we're leaving it too. Short and sweet. Um, what do you feel from your travels people most often get wrong about our culture here in the UK?
0: Uh, in Eastern Europe, they were very surprised that there were brown people in England. I would tell people I was from England, they're like, no, you're not. I'm like, yes, I am. No, you're not. You're brown. We have brown people in England. No, they don't. Okay. I'm a brown person from England. So I'll tell you that I'm that, that does happen. So I think that is uh, one of the things that I found really curious in Eastern Europe. People were telling me that I was wrong about where I was from. Mm. Um it's uh, mostly Russia, actually, mostly Russia rather than um, rather than the Baltic states. They're there, mm. so sort of a bit more aware of that kind of thing being part of the European Union. Um, um, what else do people get wrong about Britain? Well, oh, know. that's probably the main one that I I thought of. Uh, again, in Russia, this belief that we all hate Russians and spend all of our time thinking about attacking Russia, which is obviously what Putin tells them. <laughs> but um, like, i'm I'm really sorry i hate to break it to you guys but we don't think about russia very often (laughs) (laughs) i know i mean i did when i was in the army and doing this journey but uh you know that's a product of their their beliefs that they're told over there uh in in uganda had some quite funny ones about um uh, our, our 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 recent misdemeanors apparently um uh, in parts of in parts of Africa, they genuinely believe that AIDS was spread by the KGB. Uh, wrong, AIDS was spread by the CIA and MI six. Although that was actually a KGB disinformation uh, plan called Operation Infection, uh, that was genuinely spread by the Russians uh, in the nineteen eighties. What else is about
1: there? our government that we'd spread? So they wanted to educate those people that we would spread the the virus. Yes,
0: yeah, so there's there's this there's this Russian Russian KGB disinformation project called Operation Infection, spoke with a K, and what they basically did was spread the rumors that HIV was a disease created by um, the West, by the CIA and uh, MI6, and spread, CIA specifically. And they had all these dodgy scientists writing it up and then getting that in papers, in communist-supporting papers in India, and then in East Germany and Africa.
1: Wow, incredible watch out for disinformation fake news exactly it's all around us um if there was one week left on this planet to say there's a alien race they come and pointing a laser gun at the planet they're gonna blow it up in a week and you get to travel to one more place which one are you going to pick and and what are you going to try and do
0: i'd probably be with my mum and my sister and my uh girlfriend now fiance. Uh, we would probably just go camping, and I'd quite happily do that in Windsor, go, go to the Great Park, maybe go up to Glencoe in Scotland, uh, but it'd be very much about being with them and just going for walks and having picnics. I think the place that maybe I would go and do it would be, I mean, New Zealand is one of the most beautiful places on earth. It. It's just stunning, absolutely mm-hmm. remarkable. So to go and do it there. Uh, my mum loves New Zealand as well. That'd be pretty cool. Um, so, yeah, I think it's more about the people I'd be with uh, then specifically where I would go. Where else do I have that I really, really want to travel. I'd quite like to see Indonesia. I've not seen any of Indonesia yet.
1: Mm. Oh congratulations by the way. But I think that's uh, a fantastic a fantastic answer. As you were saying there's some really fantastic experiences that we can have in our own our own country. There's a real depth and even doing simple things. such just like going camping, spending time in nature. It's a really nice way yeah. to connect with the people that, that you love or just uh, meet meet others as well.
0: And and there's probably three things you can do that you will not get bored doing and will stop you looking at your phone. One is to sit in the ocean and just look at the waves. Another is to sit around a campfire and just look at the fire. And another is to... On a clear night, just look up at the stars. You can do those things for hours and not get bored.
1: Mm. Uh, With the the work that you're doing, what's the impact that you'd like to have on the world?
0: Mm. Good question. Um, I would like to reduce fear of other cultures and I would like to allow us to be better informed, Um, particularly at the moment when we've got things like um, (laughs) nuclear weapons and um increased use of ai and the fact that we're going to have to work together as a planet to deal with the threats that are facing that are coming our way climate change ecological collapse Mm. ai and uh, nuclear weapons we need to have less fear of each other we need to be able to trust and understand each other and work together to um, overcome those problems so we need to reduce isolationism and nationalism and I think travel is one of the ways to do that by um, revealing insights about places. So that's something that I feel is quite important. Um, I would like to reveal better the impact of our choices. So not just looking at the release of CO2. I think there's a lot of people doing some really good work on that. But um, the destruction of resources and well, the consumption of resources and the destruction of the natural world to Enable that and to fulfil that. I think mm. there's so few wild places left. Whilst I love all of the BBC documentaries that Attenborough has done, I think it's been really good in the last couple that they've shown that those beautiful wild places are actually much smaller and much fewer than we think they are. Yeah. So I think feelings some things around that. Uh, those those are two areas that I'm trying to move more into. I think.
1: I think there's a real first you know, with movements like Extinction Rebellion really coming into yeah. their own and a lot of people more aware about the impact of their, their lives on the planet. I think it'll be there's a real first for knowledge about how how people can travel in a more sustainable way and and, and impact less. So it'd be great for you to be able to showcase that too.
0: Yeah. Traveling with trains, I think i have to accept that some before too long we're gonna to have to stop flying at all and just take trains everywhere. Mm. It means it'll take me a long time to get anywhere past Eastern Europe. <laughs>
1: I think there's a lot, a lot to be gained there if, if you're taking on a slow journey, you'll see places that you never would have seen before, you know, traveling by train into, you know, if I, on my next snowboarding holiday, want to go to France, maybe I can take the, the train over instead of flying and, and you know, go to yeah, St. Maurice exactly. and uh, take in something new. Um, For for your career, what do you say is the proudest moment of your career so far?
0: Um. Doing the New Iron Curtain from a professional perspective is probably the best thing I've done. Mm. It was highly self-conceived, self-funded, self-researched, and then self-created all of the content. I had a mate coming along to do some of the filming with me, and then created the podcast Edgelands off the back of that. So from, from a sort of professional perspective in terms of what I've achieved, that's probably the highlight, um, or the highest point in terms of single project. Mm. Um, I did a talk on stage for The Moth, The Moth Storytelling at the Union Chapel in London. And I think of all the things I've done, that was the one that was the most fulfilling, uh, most emotional and most uh, rewarding. I told the story about taking my dad's ashes to India to put them in the Ganges. And you had to tell that story on stage without any notes to 900 people for 15 minutes. That was probably the most Powerful thing that I've done, personally, it's quite cathartic. Mm. And what would be another one that I've really, I found really fulfilling? Getting on BBC Radio 4s from our own correspondent was certainly great, really cool thing to have been able to do. Um, But I guess the the best one's gonna be the first, which is when I wrote the story about taking my dad's ashes to India in the Telegraph. That was my first paid commission for a national newspaper. And to get in the telegraph to tell that story mm. and that was it that was that was brilliant
1: fantastic amazing to be share that, sharing that personal journey with so many people
0: yeah that yeah, was wonderful we're very privileged to be able to do that
1: when uh, you know i'm sure as uh, anyone would you encounter struggles on your your travel what's the the mindset and the underlying power that gets you through there
0: uh, I think the first thing is to remember that you have chosen to be there. No one else has sent you there. You have made that choice to go and be on that journey, to do that thing, be in that location. Um, that's a choice that very few people on this planet have. Um, so part of it is no more boo-hoo, get, out, get off the ambulance and just go, actually, this is not that bad. Um so there's that, there's gratitude, which is just going, wow, actually, let's think about the things that are really good here. Uh, and then there's a pragmatic approach, right, okay, what's the problem and what's the solution? What's, what's gone wrong here and how do I have to fix it? Um, so those are, the first two are mindsets and the third is a practical solution, I would say. Um, that sense of being how I've dealt with them from an emotional perspective. That's something that's easier said than done but I think, you know, unless unless something really bad has happened, it's probably not that bad. <laughs> it's yeah. not something you can't fix in 15 minutes or for 50 quid. Generally, those are the two things you need to fix most of your travel problems, 15 minutes or 50 quid.
1: Mm. Uh, what's, uh, what scares you in the world?
0: What scares me? Um, I'm not familiar enough with snakes to uh, be able to overcome my instinctive fear of them so when I see, see snakes I'm not shit. Um, so I'd like shit so I'd like to be a bit more comfortable with them um, uh, losing a loved one that scares me the mm-hmm. idea of that happening or being away and not being able to come back to help them when they need me that scares me mm. um, the blindness of consumption and a lack of willingness to reconsider that maybe permanent GDP and economic growth is not the best way to run countries or the best way to live as a society. I think that's probably the biggest um, background existential fear for me at the moment which is you watch Trump and Johnson on television talking about things that are the wrong way to deal with issues Um, Mm -hmm. and I think that that scares me because those, those things will have a big impacts on my life and my kids' lives.
1: Yeah, it's very clear that there's a real disconnection between people making decisions and the well-being of just normal people throughout the world. It seems to be a big yes. disconnection. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, I think that's partly a generational thing as well. You know, if you look mm-hmm. at who who's behind Extinction Rebellion, it's it's young or, or the school strikes. That stuff, that need to come together, that community, that communalism is, is extant, as in it's there in young people in a way that it just isn't in the older generations. Mm. Um, you know, I think Brexit probably represents similar things, you know, an isolationism versus communalism. So there's um, a real generational gap between the decision makers and the people that will inherit the earth.
1: Yeah, for sure what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Um,
0: Lev Wood once told me that the hardest thing to do is to get to the start line, that it's really easy to come up with an idea. It's really easy to finish an expedition once you have started it. The hardest thing is to get from the idea to the start line of the expedition mm. or, or project. Um, so just remembering that that's quite, that was quite a useful thing. Um, I'm trying to think, pieces of advice. I don't know I can come up with quite a good answer to this one, but I can't think
1: of any right now. I think that's pretty profound, though, getting to the start line. There's always such, the, the practicalities of breaking down a, a dream once you've sort of had, had a, a vision of what you want to do. Uh, it's always very humbling uh, observing the amount of work that it takes to get to that position, especially with yeah. travel. So many things to think about.
0: Yeah, and that's very much the stuff behind the scenes, so that's a piece of advice more of an encounter and something that i learned was from the dalai lama when we met him on walking the himalayas mm. and he told the story of how he'd learned about secrecy and visas from the chinese communists and that was amazing because it was wonderful to hear humbling to hear a man who was the leader of people who were being murdered oppressed ethnically cleansed by the chinese to hear him so show some compassion for the chinese express something he learned from them Uh, i mean the man is the incarnation of the god of compassion so you you would think the dalai lama would be compassionate but (laughs) it was still just quite a powerful lesson to hear from somebody
1: Uh, it must be an incredible experience meeting the, the dalai lama
0: yeah yeah oh and don't forget to have fun that wasn't from the dalai lama but that's quite a good idea
1: and what, what advice would you tell to the 18 year old Ash at the start of his journey?
0: Um, it'll be okay. Just um, don't worry. It'll be okay. Enjoy everything because it won't come again. Yeah. Mm. Don't worry so much. It'll be fine. It will be fine.
1: Fantastic. And before I ask uh, the last question of the conversation, um, where can people find you and connect with you if they'd like to follow your work or um, let you know what they thought of the conversation?
0: Uh, was the, Twitter and Instagram are the two ones that I use a bit. I, I stick photos and do stories up on Instagram, uh, but Twitter's probably the easiest way to converse with me. Yeah. Uh, both of those are at Ash Bardwaj, so that's at A-S-H-B-H-A-R-D-W-A-J. At Ash Bardwaj. My website is www.ashbardwatch.com I put blogs up on there and work that I've been doing. So, you know, drop me a tweet or Instagram. Those are probably the two best ways to get in touch with me.
1: Wicked. And I'll make sure to put the links for those into the, the show notes as well so people can get in contact with you. Um, and, and finally, what's, what's next on the agenda for, for Ash? Like, Have you got any travels lined up?
0: Yeah, I've got a couple of projects that I'm working on, a few ideas that I'm trying to develop at the moment. Uh, One of them is about taking a journey through India. So going from Peshawar, which is now Pakistan, all the way through to Kolkata, and then going down into the Andaman and Nicobar Islands. And that project is based on uh, some family history. I had a great uncle who was arrested in Peshawar for trying to attack the British. And uh, he ended up being imprisoned in this place. Uh, As someone who's an army reserve officer in the British Army Reserve today, that is quite an odd notion that I would be on the wrong side of things with my family. So I want to go and retrace that journey. Um, Also going to go back to New Zealand for a while, going to do a piece about uh, Maori culture, Maori heritage, um, and possibly off to South Africa in um, December. So a few projects lined up
1: exciting stuff. All right, well Ash, that brings us to the end of the conversation. It's been wonderful to to chat with you and and hear all of your stories and learnings from travels around the world and at home. Um everyone you've been listening to Second Mind, the show that fuels you to be the greatest version of yourself and better the world. If you've enjoyed the conversation today, uh please do like, subscribe and also connect with Ash and let him know what you thought of the conversation and Uh, share it with the people around you so we can keep the movement and energy going Uh, thank you all for listening and until next time stay true